Ecclesiastes. You heard that right, Ecclesiastes. If you're like me, you've never heard a sermon series on Ecclesiastes. You might have heard a sermon or two. Maybe you've never even studied the book. Twelve small chapters after the book of Proverbs. It's often a neglected book. And really birthed out of some conversations with many of you, um, I thought this was the appropriate book that we should take the next step in. And so over the course of probably about the next 12 weeks, maybe, maybe a few less, a few more, uh, we will look at um, this incredible book. Today, the first uh, 11 verses. Before I do that, I want to say thank you, Tom, for the last three weeks and unpacking the word for us. Um, it is evident that God has graciously gifted you to handle his word, so thank you. I um, appreciate your willingness to serve in that way. And kind of with that in mind, our family had a really good time. We got away for about a week, a little over a week. A um, number of highlights, one being we hung out with family, uh, but another highlight, we got, to, we got to watch a humpback whale in the Puget Sound jumping out of the water, uh, doing all kinds of stuff. It was just astounding. That, and so, anyways, God was gracious to us, and we've come back refreshed. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises as the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes a wind. And on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. Let me pray. Lord, these are your words. Uh, I pray that you would not only instruct us, but that you would help us to behold, as your good book says, behold wondrous things in this book, in this Ecclesiastes. Would you do that, Lord? In your name I pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and he says that all Scripture is profitable. And so that includes this book. Two weeks ago, I read a quote from Carolyn Mahaney that I think captures the profitability of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I want to read that again. She simply writes, Ecclesiastes has shown me the secret of enjoying life, even in the midst of trouble. 
It has rescued me from disillusionment when labors I thought were fruitful appeared to be for naught. When friends have turned their backs, Ecclesiastes has helped me guard against bitterness. It has cured me of setting my hope on a particular outcome and protected me from bewildered and disheartened by bad news. In short, Ecclesiastes made me a realist, and yet I am happier than ever before. And it's my prayer that as we walk through this glorious book that we, um, we'll become somewhat of a realist. And uh, as a result, we'll enjoy life even more in the midst of trouble or whatever the Lord uh, allows in our life. As we look at these first 11 verses, I'm going to follow Derek Kidner's um, outline. Really simple. The author, the motto, and the treadmill. The author is verse 1. We find it in verse 1. The, the motto of the book, I think, is found in verse 2. And then the treadmill, which we're going to see as we carry on throughout this book, is found in verses 3 through 11. The author. We're told in verse 1 that this, this is the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Uh, if you've read through 1 Kings, you would immediately go, well, that's got to be Solomon. But there has been a lot of doubt cast on this. A lot of individuals in the academia have said it can't be Solomon. Uh, I tend to disagree with them. I, I, uh, they, they, they have some good suggestions or thoughts, but ultimately, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, who else is that but Solomon? But there's other clues in the text. Uh, if, we, if we go down to verse 16, I want you to notice... The author says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, we go back to 1 Kings and we stop and think about what, what God did for Solomon, giving him all this wisdom. It seems like this has got to be Solomon. We go to the end of the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We read these words, um, particularly verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Doesn't that sound like Solomon? The author of much of Proverbs? Now, it's true, Ecclesiastes, it doesn't actually mention his name, as Proverbs does, as the Song of Songs does. But I think it's Solomon. Now, Solomon calls himself the preacher. The, the Hebrew word there is a little, little more difficult to actually to translate into the English. It simply means the gatherer. And so uh, different translations wrestle with what should we call him, the preacher, the teacher, the gatherer. What, do we, what, do, what does that mean? I think they've landed on the preacher simply because he's the one that gathers the assembly to proclaim to them. Or, or maybe he's the one that is gathering the wisdom, as Solomon does in the book of Proverbs, so that it can be taught. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. But whoever wrote this, we're told in Peter that it's a man that has been moved by God and moved and carried along by the Spirit. And so these are actually the words of God. And so we carry on. What are the words of the preacher? Verse 2 is his model. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Webster defines vanity as simply this. Something that is something that is uh, empty or valueless. 
The NET Bible calls it futile. Uh, the NIV translates this meaningless. Uh, the CSB Bible, absolutely futile. Most translations use the word vanity. But what's behind that word? Uh, the, the, in the Hebrew, the word is uh, actually typically translated breath. And so um, I'll, just, I'll just give you one example, but throughout the, the Old Testament, you see this word translated breath, Psalm 39, verse 5. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Same word. The same word as we find for vanity it is this word breath. If I had a candle here, we celebrated uh, um, a birthday just before we left. I won't mention her name, but her name's her initials are R.S. So I was going to, so. but anyways, Rochelle had a birthday. We celebrated her birthday when she blew the candles out. You know how that works. The smoke filters for a while, but it, it doesn't last long, does it? I think there's a sense where the preacher is saying, simply saying life is short. Vanity. He's also, I think, trying to convey something else. It, when, you, when you see the, the smoke or when you see a mist, when we, when we left here a couple of weeks ago and went down to the States, we went through uh, the going to Sun Road down in Glacier. So we made that trip, uh, spent the first night in Kalispell as we were heading to Seattle, but it was incredibly foggy at the top, almost uh, unnerving foggy at the top of that little skinny hill, and you were like, okay, there's a cliff right there, and, and we're really not seeing where we're going. Um, but as we broke through that fog and then we saw the other side, this is incredible valley below. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Um, and, and then you'd see these, these wispy clouds. But they would quickly disappear. But, but, but they're not only short-lived, but they're hard to grasp. And I think when the preacher says vanity, vanity, all is vanity, he's, he's not simply saying life is short, but life is elusive. It can't be hung on to or clung to or controlled. Uh, we see that in Psalm 39, the next verse. We read verse 5. Verse 6 says, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So you, you, you raise up all kinds of wealth and... and Who's going who's gonna to own it? Your children or the government or somebody else? Ecclesiastes speaks to that. When the preacher uses the words vanity of vanities, he's piling up this word over and over. He goes, breath of breath, says the preacher, breath of breath, and all is breath. When he says vanity of vanities, it's, it's a Hebrew way of saying uh, intensifying something. And so the Hebrews would say the, the whole, the, there was the holy place where the, where the Israelites, would, the, the priests would do their work, but there was the holy of holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. And that's where the high priest would come in once, once a year and would sprinkle the blood on the, on the Ark, on the Seat of Atonement, so that the people's sins could be ransomed and purchased, paid for. That was... The holy of holies. And our preacher wants to emphasize the vanity, the futility, the shortness, the elusiveness of this life.
One author says that he's trying to unmask for us what is actually real so that we can see very clearly. Many years ago, I, I was um, figuratively slapped in the face with this reality. When I was in seminary working on my master's degree, I worked every other day cleaning carpet. That's how we made it work. And um, I had to be 25, 26. It was probably that first year, maybe a year and a half of my time there. We were just married. Um, kind of thought I had life by the tail. I was going to change the world, like get out of seminary and change the world. Like kind of what happens when you're that young. And we were cleaning carpets. We walk into this home. This home was on Riverfront Avenue. When you remember that avenue, it was right along the James River, an absolutely beautiful uh, avenue. All the homes were from the Victorian era. Uh, outside of all the homes were these beautiful oak trees that were two, three hundred years old, or maple trees. It was a stunningly beautiful street. If you walked into most of those homes, they had these beautiful staircases that were always, um, you know, beautifully ornate. How do you say that word, ornate? <laughs> all out of wood. Some of them would be the spiral thing. Uh, we went into this one home. It was absolutely beautiful, and we were asked to clean the carpet, and, and I believe this was on the third floor. The lady that greeted us, uh, somehow she was caring for the house and the family. Uh, she says the lady of the house is actually upstairs in the master bedroom sleeping, but could you go in and clean around the bed? She won't wake up. She's sick. Uh, thing, basically, it, became, it was apparent that she, that she was dying. And typically what we would do is we'd uh, each grab a wand and we'd go into diff two different directions and start cleaning so we can get, done, get the place done quickly. But we thought because we, we didn't want to disturb her, we both went into that room and I kind of guided the hoses and, and my buddy was, 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 was cleaning. And as I was guiding the hoses, I had time to look around. And there was this lady, there couldn't have been... There was hardly anything left of her. You could just see the form of her body under the blankets. Um, you see her face. It was very wrinkled. Very, she was old. Like she had to be in her 90s, I was guessing. Now she didn't wake up at all. And I thought, in the midst of all this beauty, here she is dying. And it was, it was striking. But what was even more striking is as I was helping with the hoses, I was starting to look around the room. And around the room were pictures of of I, I assumed was her and her family. Some of those pictures had to be from the, the 20s, others 30s, a little later. But this woman was strikingly beautiful. But what was, what was left in her was, was not what I was seeing on those pictures. And I, and I thought, you know, <laughs> I mean, I was 25, life was beginning. And I thought, you know, this, this, is, this is my destiny. This is where I'm headed. This is where we're all going. Life is short. Life is elusive. You can't hang on to it. I can't hang on to it. And the author of Ecclesiastes, I think Solomon, who has everything, says, wake up. This is our reality. This is, this is where we're headed. Listen to Solomon as he unpacks his treadmill that we're on. 
What does man gain by all the toil, verse 3, at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes. Let me stop there. My dad always says, it's time for me to move on and for you guys to take over. But when he says that, that means it will be time for me to move on and, and, and my next gen- the next generation to take over. And, and, and a generation comes and a generation go- goes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the winds return. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, and, they, and there they flow again. There's this ongoing treadmill, this ongoing cycle of life that, that we, 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 we're on it for a few seconds. Uh, uh, we're on it for a breath, but it disappears. He, he continues, he says, what does man gain? He's speaking of, of finances. He's speaking of, it, it's a financial term at least. What does man gain by all the toil, by our hard work, our sweat, or our, our tears? All of which we toil under the sun, under this marker of time, under this temporal existence. What do we gain? Someday we'll lie in that bed. His point is nothing. This is Solomon who has everything this earth could give him, and he says, this is reality. This is the treadmill we're on. He goes on, he says, verse uh, uh, 9, there is nothing new under the sun. You might ask, what about the iPhone? Solomon didn't have that, right? But what's the iPhone typically used for? It's, it's, it's used so that we might connect with one another. We used to use the phone to call people, but now we use the phone to connect in all kinds of ways. Rarely call each other. I find that odd. But throughout history, humanity has been wa- looking for ways to better connect with one another. We've had different platforms throughout history, but no matter what platform we've had, is never completely satisfied. And that's what he says in verse 7. Or verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The author is not saying that there's not new technology. The author is simply saying that nothing will break this cycle, that nothing will ultimately satisfy us. Nothing under the sun will do that. Nothing. There's no remembrance of former things, no sense of permanence. We'll soon die and eventually be forgotten. You see the reality? He just paints this reality, but we don't typically live like this. Listen to what David Gibson writes. It's a little bit of a long statement, but I want to read it. I think he captures it so well. The reality is we spend our lives trying to escape the constraints of our created condition. Opening our eyes to this is a significant breakthrough. To be human is to be a creature. And to be a creature is to be finite. We are not God. We are not in control. And we will not live forever. We will die. But we avoid this reality by playing 
Let's pretend. Listen. Let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs or emigrate to the sun, we we won't experience the humdrum, tedium, and ordinariness of life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever, ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. Let's pretend that if we get through this week's pile of washing and dirty diapers and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week we'll be quieter. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. You see, we long for change in a world of permanent repetition. And we dream of how to interrupt it. We long for lives of permanence in a world of constant change, and we strive to achieve it. We, we spend all our lives aligning our better selves with a different future that we envisage as more rewarding. And in it all, we are simply trying to make permanent what is not meant to be permanent. And by constant change, we're trying to control what is not meant to be controlled. The seasons and natural cycles of the world are content to come and go, but we sweat and toil to make believe that it will not be so with us. Isn't that a powerful little read? Let's pretend. So how do we live? Now, I think Solomon is eventually going to show us some things that are really, really good and really, really helpful. Uh, I'm going to leave that. But what I'd like you to, us to do is just kind of end the sermon by going to the New Testament. I want to leave you with a few thoughts from the New Testament. And, and my, my hope is that you contemplate these things over the, the course of the next several weeks as we go through Ecclesiastes. The first place I want to take you to is Romans chapter 8, verse 20. It's just a little statement that the Apostle Paul makes in verse 20. He simply says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. That word futility is, is, uh, uh, has incredibly strong connections with the word that Solomon uses in, in Ecclesiastes, vanity. The earth is subjected to futility, not willingly. Later he'll say in verse 22 that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Paul in this book will, will articulate in Romans, he'll articulate that the reason that this, the, the earth is subjected to this futility is because of Adam's sin. And someone needs to rescue us, pay our ransom, free us from this prison we're in. And that's where Jesus comes in. The second place I want you to just to, to, to think about over the course of the next several weeks as we go through the, um, the book of Ecclesiastes is, is, is Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is an incredible passage where Peter gets it right. Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And then he goes, who do you, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says what? He says, um, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And, 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 and when he says that, he's simply saying, you are the king that's been promised. You're the son of God. And Jesus looks at him and says, you are blessed because my father has shown you this. And then Jesus begins to tell them, he says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this credible confession, then Jesus gives them the bad news that he's going to go die. Peter just said, you are the king, the promised king, and Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's good, that's where the king sits, but I'm going to go there to die. That's bad. Peter probably still kind of uh, high on himself because he got the answer right. Then begins to pull Jesus aside. Now get this, he pulls the one he's called the Son of God aside and says, let me correct you on what you're saying. Now we don't, tell, we, we don't get a detail what he actually says, but I got this picture. He says, Jesus, you know, you, I, I, you are the king and the king sits on a throne and the king has a kingdom and the king needs to go to Jerusalem and become king and we're going to knock off these Romans. Christ says something to Peter that's incredibly strong. Verse 23 of chapter 16, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now he's talking to Peter. He says, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What are those things of God that Peter should be setting his mind on? Verse 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever who loses his life for my sake will find it. Contemplate this. I don't want to unpack it today, but consider it. Jesus says, Peter, this is what you are to think about. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. It means I'm willing to die and follow me. For whoever would cling to his life will lose it. Didn't Solomon say we can't cling to it? But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew chapter 20, the third passage I want you to draw your attention to, to contemplate over the course of the next several weeks is Matthew chapter 20. And there we have, for the third time, Jesus predicts his coming death. This time he says, um, the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. And this time it's not Peter that comes up and begins to speak, but this time it's the mother of John and James that comes up to speak and says, Jesus, when you're sitting on your throne, could John sit on this side and James on this side or whichever way you want to do it, but could, could you work that out? When, when you're king and you're in Jerusalem, could you work that out? So my, my two boys have uh, this ability to, to, to change the world with you. 
And Jesus says in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 20, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He's talking to his disciples. And then the example he uses, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus laid down his life as a ransom that frees us from this endless cycle. And in the same way, that's what, that's what we read in Matthew chapter 20. In the same way, what are, we, what are we supposed to do? We're to lay down our life. We're to serve one another. We're to follow him. And that's the message of Christianity. It's kind of backwards. It's through death we live. It's through his death we have life. And as we journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, I, I encourage you to contemplate these words from the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Matthew chapter 16. Kind of read through it. And Matthew chapter 20. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for allowing us the privilege to have this book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for Solomon who unmasks for us the, the, the I guess, reality. Help us to understand how best to live in this reality. That everything under the sun is vain, vanity, it's a breath, it's short, it's elusive. Uh, we're, just, we're just jumped on this treadmill and, and eventually we'll jump back off. And Lord, help us to grapple with the fact that you've said that life actually comes when we are willing to lose it. And so, Lord, would you be our instructor and our teacher in the days to come and the weeks to come? And would you help us to live in light of this reality, these, I guess, two realities? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we close, we're just going to pause to remember as Jesus has taught us, but... He gave his life as a ransom. He gave his life so that we might have life.